just one thing you can't do to a pastor as a worship leader. You can't end the prayer and then, let's sing that one more time. I'm like ready. I'm on my way up here. I don't know. But anyway, my name is Drew. For those of you who don't know me, one of the pastors here at Salt City. Something you may not know about me is that I am a John Mayer fan. Okay, so when a John Mayer album comes out, I like to check that out. So it was a couple weeks ago. It was actually kind of a weird experience for me. There was um, this video that surfaced on YouTube of John Mayer playing the song, How Great Thou Art. Did anyone see this? So he opened his concert in New Zealand. It was a benefit concert after the shooting there. He opened his concert by playing the song, How Great Thou Art. And I've always had this, like, I, I play this game with people where I ask them, if you could pick any musician to be a Christian, who would it be? And I always say John Mayer, because I've always just wanted to hear him, hear him sing a worship song. And I think part of that is, well, John Mayer's an incredibly gifted musician. That's just a fact. But the other uh, reality is that a lot of his songs just express this longing for something more. And he's actually written kind of extensively about it, shared very honestly about what's going on inside of him. And I've just been like, man, I would love if that guy would just come to know Jesus because I think I know what he's longing for. And let me give you an example of this. So in his song, Something, Something's Missing, this is what he said. I'm dizzy from the shopping malls. I searched for joy, but I bought it all. It doesn't help the hunger pains and a thirst that I have to drown first to ever satiate. Something's missing, and I don't know how to fix it. Something's missing, and I don't know what it is at all. And I think that is the universal human experience, that we are all looking for something, and we feel that something is missing in us, and we tend to run to a number of different things in life to try to satisfy that desire, but we feel like that desire outside of Jesus can never be satisfied. And our big idea Today is very simple, and we're going to look at kind of a weird story, and it's that idols don't satisfy. So anything that we would run to to find satisfaction outside of Jesus, the one true God, the Bible would consider an idol. And the truth is, if we run to those things, they don't satisfy us. And so let's read this story in Acts chapter 19. We didn't have time to get through the whole passage that I was assigned, so we're just going with verses 23 through 41. Acts chapter 19, 23 through 41. It'll be on the screens. It's kind of a long passage, so go ahead and follow along with me. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. 
So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let them. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are pro-councils. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Okay, so what we're going to look at in this passage, this kind of strange passage about this event that happens in Ephesus, is we're going to see three ways that the gospel exposes idolatry. The reason for idolatry, the truth about idolatry, and the absurdity of idolatry. So the first way the gospel exposes idolatry is the reason for idolatry. So let's just go ahead and read Acts 19, 23 through 25, and verse 27 again. So it says, About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together and the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Okay, so there's this goddess named Artemis. And Artemis is the god of the Ephesians. And basically what happens is Paul has come into town and he has rented out this hall in town called the Hall of Tyrannus. And, hall, and Paul has been preaching the gospel in this hall in sort of a persuasive back and forth sort of way for two years persuading people that the gospel is true and therefore that Artemis is not God. And no one really takes too much notice of it until it starts to affect the economy. And then people start to get mad. And maybe the first person to notice is this guy named Demetrius. And the text says that Demetrius makes silver shrines. What's actually true is that he sort of leads this company. He's got all these craftsmen working for him, and they make statues of Artemis, and they make these silver shrines, and people come to visit this temple of Artemis from all over the world. 
The temple of Artemis was much bigger than the Greek Parthenon, and it was actually one of the seven wonders of the world. And the way that that came to be, it talks about later on in the text that there was this meteorite that fell from heaven, and basically the Ephesians took advantage of that. So this meteorite fell from heaven. They're like, oh, that looks like the goddess Artemis. And then they took this meteorite and they actually put it inside of the temple and told everyone to come and to worship with them this goddess. Now, the goddess Artemis was the goddess of the hunt and became sort of worshipped as the god of success, wealth, or business, which was kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in Ephesus because they called her the god of success, wealth, and business, and she actually brought success, wealth, and business to the city of Ephesus because everyone came there to worship her. So people stop buying these statues because they start to believe that Jesus is the one true God and they don't need these idols anymore. And Demetrius catches on because he starts losing business. And so you might think he would say, in his argument against Jesus as the one true God, you might think he would say, well, Artemis is really God, and we should worship her, and we owe her our devotion. But his argument, it turns out, is backwards, and it reveals the heart of the matter. Here's sort of the flow of his argument. He starts off by saying, men, you know that from this business, we have our wealth. Which gives us an indication of what Demetrius is really worshiping. For him, it's about money. It's not about his devotion to Artemis. It's about his money. And then he sort of goes on and he talks about this trade of theirs would go into disrepute. So again, that has to do with money. And then he talks about the temple, which is the thing that people come to see. So that's about money. And then he sort of tags on at the end, right? And she may even be (laughs) deposed of her magnificence. So it's like, it's about money. It's about money. It's about money. Oh yeah, and Artemis, she deserves our worship too. (laughs) So what this reveals, guys, is that at the heart of it, the reason that Demetrius is an idolater is because he's trying to, to meet this need in himself for security and satisfaction, and he's finding that need to be met in money. So what he's doing is he's simply using Artemis to get himself the money that he desires. You might think, okay, good thing, we're modern people, we don't worship idols anymore, we don't bow down to temples, we don't have the same struggle. But what's true is that all of us are looking for satisfaction, for security in things that are not God that ultimately can never bring us the satisfaction and security that we desire. You can imagine Demetrius, right? There's this big temple there. The demand for these little statues goes up. And he is spending all of his time 
making these silver shrines, managing his employees, making money. And what we know is that he never had enough money. He just kept working, got more money, never had enough money, kept going day after day after day. And what's true about all of our our idolatry is that whatever we serve will end up enslaving us. Whatever you serve will end up enslaving you. Let me give you a silly example of this, okay? Recently, you guys know, I was diagnosed with this disease called Sjogren's disease. So I've been trying to watch my health more. So I hired a personal trainer named Tony Lee. And (laughs) Tony's been great. He's helped me out. But I've sort of subsidized the help from Tony, who goes to our church, is a college student, knows a lot about health and exercise and all that, with watching some YouTube videos, okay? And so I'm trying to figure out different lifts to do that can be helpful to my joints and all these different things. And so I've been watching these different videos. And what happened is I start watching these videos and then they start popping up, like this one YouTube channel starts popping up. And what I realize is that this workout thing is like a bottomless pit. It's like you keep discovering new exercises and then this particular guy that I'm following, he like keeps coming out with new, new videos and he has like these videos that are like, you have to do this exercise every morning. I'm like, okay. No, <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm going to do my exercises just at the gym. And then it's like, we got to do this every night before you go to bed. And he starts explaining these things about muscles that I didn't even know existed. And what I realize is, is if I devote myself to exercise, health, fitness, the way that this man wants me to, it would literally consume my entire life. I could spend my entire life, which would be a really bad stewardship of my body in particular, but, but it's like, I can't put on muscle, pray for me. But anyway, um, anyway, you could spend your entire life devoting yourself to health, to eating certain things, to, to doing certain exercises, to concentrating on your low abs and and your traps and all these different parts of your body. And what's true is, that's how all idolatry works. You look at anything in your life that you would begin to devote yourself to, and what that thing will start to demand of you is everything. And what started as a desire just to be a little bit more healthy, can become an obsession that actually begins to enslave you and pull you away from Jesus. Anything or anyone apart from Jesus can become an idol in your life that is actually a lie because it can't bring you the satisfaction and the joy that it promises. Okay, let me give you a few examples of of idols. This is from Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, and he sort of lists these different sentences and shares with us sort of to get at the heart of our idolatry. So I'm just going to ask you three, well, I'm going to make these these sort of three statements. So, So you might have a comfort idol if life only has meaning or you only have worth 
if I have this kind of pleasure experience or a particular quality of life. Or you might have a work idol. If life only has meaning or you only have worth, if you are highly productive and getting a lot done. Or you might have a materialism idol. If life only has meaning or I only have worth, if I have a certain level of wealth, financial freedom, and very nice possessions. And you can see whether it's comfort or it's work or it's materialism or it's something else, whatever your idol is, the more you pursue it, the more of a void it will create in your life. So what is creating that void in your life? What are you worshiping that is not satisfying you? Okay, so we move on. And thankfully, Paul gives us some sanity in the midst of this insanity in the passage. He gives us the truth about idolatry. Okay, so again, verse 26. Again, Demetrius is sort of recapping what Paul said. He said, And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that God's made with hands are not God's. Okay, so Paul has spent all of this time in the hall of Tyrannus, a rented hall, like a university lecture hall, and people are coming and going as they please, and he's having these discussions with them about the gospel. And Demetrius has captured everything that Paul has said during two years in one sentence. And he says, Paul is saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. Which seems like something pretty simple and something, honestly, that's pretty obvious and not offensive. It's like, you make it with your hands, it's not God. But this creates this uprising which shows us sort of the insecurity that idolatry creates, the confusion that it can create in your soul. Because we'll see this later more, but idolatry actually pulls you away from thinking truthfully about things, and you begin to be led by your own passions and your own pleasures. And as you begin to go down that road, you become less and less satisfied. And so what that needs to be counterbalanced by is the truth of God's word. And so we said that Demetrius, he's all about wealth, right? He's pursuing money as his idol. What we know about the Apostle Paul is that actually what he would do is he would wake up about five o'clock in the morning like everybody else did. He would go to work as a tent maker from about six to 11 o'clock in the morning And then he would be at the hall of Tyrannus from about 11 in the morning till 4 or 5 in the afternoon. And that's because Paul's pursuit was not of wealth or money, but his pursuit was of the souls of people. His goal was to connect people to the truth of God's word. You see, Paul was living in this society, but he wasn't fully participating in the society. There was a desire in Paul's heart 
much greater than the desire for economic success. His desire was that other people would enter the kingdom of God. That they would come to see that idols are worthless pursuits and that Jesus is worth your entire life. His concern was with the souls of people, not with his own success. Guys, I was reminded of, of just the importance of the truth of the gospel the other night. Also preparing for Easter was reading a book to one of my kids. And Hazel was sitting next to me. And she's had a lot of questions since our son Jude died about why his body got put under a rock, right? And so she's really concerned because she actually saw the casket go down under the tombstone. And she's like, when I die, will I be under this rock? And so we're reading this book, um, which recaps the Easter story. And we get to the place where it talks about Jesus coming out of the tomb. He's died for our sins, in our place. His body is placed in the tomb. And then the stone is rolled away. And he comes out. And he's alive. And I sat there and I began to explain to my daughter Hazel that the stone, the rock, couldn't keep Jesus in the tomb. And I started to explain to her that one day, yes, we will die and we'll be buried under a tombstone. But that when Jesus comes back, we'll be raised to new life again. And that even Jude, our son, will come out of the grave and we'll see him again. And that he'll be alive. His body will be raised from death. And death cannot hold him or us who are in Christ. Now here's the thing. You might not make a lot of money off that message. That message might not make you very popular. That message might get you persecuted. That message might upset people. But that is the most important truth in the world. That is something that money cannot buy. The reason that Jesus is our God is because every other God will enslave you. They will tell you you've got to just keep doing more. Your work, if you devote yourself to work, you've got to just keep, you've got to put in longer hours. You've got to do more. Your boss's demands will weigh, weigh down on you. You bring your computer on vacation. You won't be able to turn it off. You won't be able to put it down. But Jesus isn't like that. Jesus is the only God who is gracious and good, who saves you by his work, not by your work. So I'm calling you out of your idolatry. I'm calling you to Jesus because Jesus wants to set you free. He wants to give you life, not suck life away from you, so that you can actually go through your day with freedom, knowing that you're God's child and walking with him, and that in eternity, he will give you eternal life by raising you from the dead. There's nothing better than this. 
This is what it means to follow after Jesus. We see more in the passage as we go on, sort of in the crowd's response of the nature of idolatry. And we're actually going to see the absurdity of idolatry in this last passage. Okay, verses 32 through 34 it says, Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Okay, so we get a picture here of the ridiculousness of idolatry. Okay, so this crowd comes together. There's this theater that they're in that holds about 25,000 people. And they've all gone down there, and they're kind of looking at each other, and they're like, do you know why we're here? No, I don't know why we're here. Why are we here? I don't know. And they all, it's this mob mentality, right? So they just start chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the text says they chant this even though they don't even know why they're chanting it for two hours. Have you ever chanted anything for two hours in your entire life? Just think how physically exhausting it would be to chant that for two hours. And they don't even know why they're doing it. Which I think gives us a picture of what idolatry looks like. We don't even know why we're doing it. As much as we'd like to think we're rational creatures, we are often creatures of habit and creatures who are following our own desires. And left to our own devices, we're exactly like this. We get up And we bow down to a thousand different things in our life. And if you ask us why we're living the way that we're living, we can't even give you a good answer. And I want you to think about this in contrast to the thoughtful, reasonable way that Paul lived his life. The Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Why are we doing this? I don't know. Paul, persuading people to follow after Jesus day after day. You see, the difference between a life of idolatry and a life of following Jesus is idolaters follow their passions and Christians follow the word of God. It is reasonable. We think through why we are doing what we are doing, and we are continually turning away from the ways of our culture and turning toward the ways of God. We are affirming things that we can affirm in our culture, and we are rejecting things that we must reject in our culture, and in so doing, we are seeking to follow Jesus. But Christianity is not about following your gut or having an emotional experience. Christianity is about purposefully following the Word of God.
So let me give you some tracks to run on because I think there's a couple different approaches that we could take to culture that would be missteps. And I think there's a path forward that God would have all of us to walk on. So one of the paths that I think has some right in it, but is mostly a misstep, is to condemn culture. So many individual Christians and churches take this posture. It's looking at our culture as bad and wrong. And so we sort of stand at a distance and we are judgmental and separate from the culture because we've actually sort of demonized the people in our lives that don't know Jesus. And so that's sort of the mentality of the holy huddle. We stay together, we stick close because we don't want to be corrupted by the people that are out there in the world. So that's sort of mindless judgment, I would say. They're bad, we're good, let's keep our distance. The other way that we could respond to culture is just by simply consuming culture. It's watching the same TV shows as everybody else, it's going to the same sporting events as as everybody else, and enjoying all of those things in the same way that everyone else does sort of uncritically consuming those things and thinking that because it's a part of our culture, it must be good and it's not something that I need to filter out. And so people in this camp, they tend to think that anyone who's a Christian who is seeking to walk in the path of obedience is just a legalist. Oh, you're saying no to that TV show, you're saying that man, I don't want to be the kind of Christian you are because you're way too concerned about the rulers. rules. I'm just walking in God's grace. Maybe. Or maybe you're just consuming the culture in a sinful and idolatrous way. Okay? So we could condemn the culture, we could consume the culture, but I think the path that Paul would have us on is different. It's actually to persuade the culture. Persuade the culture. Now, here's why I think this path is the path that God wants us on. Because in order to persuade the culture, you have to be with people. You have to be where they are. You have to have relationships with people. You have to be like Paul, rubbing shoulders with people and having purposeful conversations with them. But it's not just that you're with them as a consumer. It's that you're with them, boldly seeking to influence them. But when you're seeking to influence them, you know that you can't influence anybody by just judging them or condemning them. But you influence people by affirming in them what you see that is good and rejecting in them gently and graciously what you see is not helpful. So God would have us not to be condemners, consumers, but persuaders. Which means we're going to have to be firmly rooted in who we are in Jesus. So you might be asking, okay, what does this look like? What would that actually look like? Let me just walk you through sort of the experience of what it would look like going to one of the temples of our day, U.S. Bank Stadium. Okay, you walk into U.S. Bank Stadium. How should you think as a Christian going to a Vikings game? 
Okay, there might be some affirmations that you make. Let's say you go to, with one of your coworkers. There's some affirmations you're making. You're saying, wow, that was an amazing catch. I can't believe that God has made people that are so athletically gifted and I could never do that. And that was incredible. I can't believe they can run that fast. And you're looking at the architecture of the, of the stadium itself. They're just like, wow, this is amazing. God has made people's brains so that they can actually think in such a way that they can make a building like this where the roof won't collapse. <laughs> this is awesome. But you're also looking around, and maybe you're not saying this to your coworker, but you're looking around And there's part of you, I hope, that's grieved being there. Because you're thinking, it's Sunday. I wonder how many of these people went to church. You're looking around and you're thinking, think how much money has gone into this place. Think if that money were channeled toward the worship of Jesus, how many people could know him? You're also like turning your eyes away from the cheerleaders, right? You're like, that is not pleasing to God in any possible way. And so there's, there is this dividedness that we feel in our culture as Christians. I think you should go to the Vikings game, but I don't think you should go and just skull, skull. Like that's the equivalent of this, right? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And you just get in like this robotic consumer mentality and you don't think about the things of God while you're there. We're to be different, but we're to be with people persuading them toward Jesus. Okay, how do we become these type of people? How do we move in that direction? I think it's very simple. We turn away from idols to Jesus. To be a person that persuades the culture, you have to be a person who knows Jesus Not just as an intellectual concept, but as someone who is meeting the deepest desires of your life. In John chapter 4, 13 to 14, this is what Jesus said. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is calling us back again to him. He's like, you've been drinking this stagnant water, this water that's never quenching your thirst, that's never satisfying you. I want you to come back to me because I can meet your needs. I can quench your thirst. Here's the beautiful thing about Jesus. He doesn't hold our idolatry against us. We drift from him every week, and we come back here to be reminded of the truth of his grace and actually to return to him. Let's pray and do that together. Jesus, I uh, thank you that you um, are like living water, that we can even just come to you right now and, and admit that we've run away from you. We've run to comfort. We've run to our work. We've run to entertainment. We've, we've been just consumers in our society. And we've also been um, just self-righteous and condemners of our society as well. And We just need uh, 
We need you. Things are simple, Jesus, when we just come to you and ask that you would, would meet our needs. And so I ask that you would do that. In Jesus' name, amen.